open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 13. We're in verses 44 through 46 this Lord's Day morning, uh, which we'll run into this afternoon, I intend. Uh, <laughs> this will not be a 15-minute sermon. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The verses read as follows. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl, uh, pearl uh, of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I'm using as a subject uh, for these verses this morning, these parables, the most valuable possession in the world. Uh, these two parables by Jesus illustrate for us the infinite worth or value of the kingdom of heaven. Because its worth is infinite, there is no end to its value. Nothing can come close to it. So Jesus teaches that the kingdom is worth giving up everything to obtain it. For the kingdom involves the ultimate issues of one's personal existence, the salvation of one's soul. The kingdom of heaven, in case you're not quite sure what we're referring to here, is the sphere or realm of salvation and is entered through faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody is not in the kingdom of heaven as it is articulated here in this, these parables, and in fact in all of the parables. Only those who have by faith come to Christ are in the kingdom where he rules over the hearts of all those who are his subjects. It's the best kingdom in the world. Amen. It is the only kingdom that will last. It's the only kingdom that will be here when everything else is gone. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And if you're in that kingdom, you're in the kingdom that will be here when everything else has perished. The two parables here present characters who come to the kingdom of heaven differently. But they both recognize the incomparable worth of the kingdom and do whatever is necessary to obtain it, to make it their possession. The first man uh, in the parable of hidden treasure, as it's uh, denominated by scholars, because Jesus uses that term, that man discovers the kingdom. And in fact, Jesus compares it to a hidden treasure that this man discovers. We're going to use, therefore, uh, the first heading for this first parable, hidden treasure. Now, now that's creative, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus uses the idea of treasure hidden in a field because it was a common practice to hide treasure that way in his day. On the other hand, we don't do that. I've heard that people in time past and modern times, they would hide their treasure in a mattress or under it. But I've never heard where people in modern times would hide their treasure in the ground but that's what they did 
in Jesus' day. For us, we place our uh, treasure not in the ground, but we place it in a bank or a safe deposit box or invested in stocks and bonds and whatever else is available to place our treasure. The idea of hiding wealth in the ground is therefore unfamiliar to us. I don't know if anybody in this room knows anybody who knows who has done that. I certainly don't. So background information is needed for us. We, we need to understand why they would do that. The Jewish first century historian Josephus provides the background information explaining the practice to which Jesus alludes to here in this parable. Josephus reports incredible wealth Jews had buried underground which the Romans discovered. The tenuous political conditions that prevailed in Jesus' day prompted people to bury their treasure for security. Not only uh, the tenuous or weak um, political situation will require them to do that, but also if people were taking a journey, they would take their money, their jewels, and they would hide it in the ground. The practice of burying money, jewelry, etc., was so familiar to Jesus' contemporaries that in the parable of the talents, you remember that? He recorded uh, there in Matthew chapter 25, uh, it's recorded there, Jesus relates that a wicked slave buried his talent in the ground. Now, let me explain the talent. Talent, uh, with Jesus' usage and understanding of his contemporaries, was not a skill or ability. But a talent represented money. And the money represented opportunity to serve the master while he was away. Of course, the master in the parable there is Jesus Christ. And what he does, he gives people talents. He gives them opportunities to serve him. And this wicked servant who didn't have a relationship savingly with the master, with Jesus, he hid his talent in the ground. So the people understood that. They grasped that. In the parable before us, this treasure which a man found and hid again. You see it there in verse 44, which a man found and hid again. Now the man could have been walking through the field, other ways he could have come across the treasure in this field, but probably the man had uh, been hired by the landowner to cultivate the field. While plowing, the plow's plowshare contacted and unearthed the hidden treasure. He's just going along plowing, doing his day labor work, and wow, there's treasure there. The man immediately recognizes the value of his find. It's an immensely valuable treasure. And he doesn't hesitate to rehide it because he intends to make it his own. You'll notice, it says, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The joy-producing treasure moves the man, of course, to liquidate all of his assets. Whatever he owned, he says, I'm selling it all because this uh, treasure is so valuable, I must obtain it. And so I'm going to do that to get the cash and I'm going to make the purchase so I can have that treasure as my own. That's what he's saying. 
Now, I'm going to tell you something. This man knew a bargain when he saw it. In fact, this is a great bargain. You might think, you mean give up everything for this treasure? Yes. It's a bargain. Giving up everything. Let me just add this. Really, this probably ought to be later in the sermon, but I'm going to say it right now. Is that all right? <laughs> Giving up everything to receive Christ is a great bargain for the sinner. You don't make a better bargain than giving up everything for Jesus Christ. If you make that bargain, you made the bargain of a lifetime and a bargain for eternity, and you will be praising the Lord for all eternity that he gave you the ability to make that bargain, and you belong to him, and he belongs to you. It's a great bargain. That's why he did it. Man saw this infinitely worthy treasure, the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might imagine that some would complain about the man's actions. They say, well, you know, this is unethical. And, and Jesus is telling this story, uh, this unethical. I mean, after all, it was another man's land. And he discovers it, he sells everything and buys it. Now, that ain't right. It's not ethical. That's what people say when they don't really know what they're talking about. You see, you have to have background information. You have to know what was going on in that day and time uh, and understanding to grasp whether it's ethical and legal. According to Jewish rabbinical law, the finder did not act unethically or illegally. The Jewish rabbinical law says, when an article of value whose owner was unknown and the article was found outdoors, the owner of the land had no necessary claim to it. Even if it was just outside the threshold of the house. No necessary claim. Jewish rabbinical law. Rabbinic law also stated that if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. treasure found in the field did not belong to the landowner. If it had been his, he would have dug it up before selling the field to someone else. That's what you'd have done. You say, hold on, Jack. <laughs> I, got to, I got something I got to give and then I'll sell it to you. Now, let me, can I pause here for a moment? Somebody would say, and this has happened, you've read the news, you've seen the incident, Brink truck turns over. <laughs> and in the accident, the cash goes out. And there have been some people who say, oh, God bless me. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. You're a thief. That money belonged to the bank who had the Brink truck transported. Don't go to Jew rabbinical law because we don't live under that. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> no, you just stole something. You just violated a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. The bank says, that's my money and I know where it is. The Brink truck said, I'm being paid to transport this money. It doesn't belong to you, so put that cash back where it belongs. And if you steal it and they find you, guess what? You're going to be prosecuted. I just thought I'd clarify that. <laughs> Leave God out of your lying. 
stealing. You know, that bugs me when people always want to bring God into something that's immoral. Don't say God bless you. No, he didn't. You just failed the test of righteousness. Because if you're righteous, you say, hey, that doesn't belong to me. That belongs to the bank. I'll help pick it up. Give it here. Give it to the bank's driver. Yes. That's the Christian response. But let me go on. <laughs> the fact that he did not know it, the landowner, it, that it was there, meant he had no prior right to it. Therefore, by Jewish law, it belonged to the finder. So the man in the parable was within legal and ethical bounds. And so when Jesus was telling this story, he was telling something that was all right for people to do because that's how they conducted their affairs. But the point of the parable is that the man found something so valuable, he sold everything to buy the field in order to possess the treasure. That's the point. And we've already drawn some spiritual lessons here, but I think we can uh, draw out some more. First of all, you notice the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom is not superficially visible. For people to recognize the supreme and infinite value of the kingdom of heaven, God must reveal it to them. People do not see the kingdom of heaven, see salvation as the most important, most valuable thing in the world. They don't do that. God has to show that to them. And we saw this reality back when Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And Jesus said to the Father in a prayer, he said, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, kingdom things, from the wise and intelligent people who think they're so wise and intelligent spiritually that they didn't need the kingdom, they didn't need Messiah. God hid it from, hid from them and have revealed them to infants, followers of Christ. The reason people were able to see the kingdom in Jesus' day and come to him by faith is because God revealed it to them. They didn't see it on their own. And this is a result of an act of divine grace. It's a new birth. John chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Jesus said, you must be born again. When a person is born again or born from above, that supernatural transformation that takes place by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life, a person's spiritual eyes are open, his spiritual ears are open, he can see and hear and understand divine truth. That's what happened for this man in the parable. That's what happened to you. Unregenerate people do not... To them, the gospel is nonsense. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, for they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is the unsaved man. He is 
dead in transgressions and sins. He is cut off from the life of God. He's a sinner in rebellion against God, and he doesn't receive the things of God. It, they are foolishness and moronic, moronic stuff, the gospel. You spiritually discern the things of the Spirit, the Word of God, the truth of God. The, the Spirit of God has to illuminate... The, the mind of the person to enable them to understand. He gives the capacity to, to discern spiritual truth. And that he gives to Christians. Further, Romans 8, 7 tells us, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, or toward God. The flesh is that sinful orientation of a person to gratify self. So hard in rebellion against God, hostile toward God. The reason a person see the kingdom for what it is, they've got to be born again. God has revealed it to them as he grants them the new birth. God draws sinners to himself. The man sought to possess the kingdom of God because of God's work in his life, drawing him. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can't come. Won't come. Don't want to come. Don't see the value of Jesus. Don't understand the worth of the kingdom. Because the natural man does not. He counts it all as worthless stuff, foolish stuff. Jesus says, when the Father draws you, you'll come. When he is at work, you'll come. When he's at work, you see the infinite value of the kingdom. You'll come and you'll do whatever's necessary to obtain that kingdom because the Father is working in your life. That's what happened to you if you're a child of God this morning. You didn't get up one morning thinking, oh my, I'm a smart person. I think I'm going to just go ahead and be a Christian. No, you didn't do that. You came to Christ because God drew you and you saw the beauty of Jesus Christ. You know what? Let me tell you, that's why we can sit here as believers and sing how we love him and adore him. Sinners don't sing like that. Let me tell you, God doesn't drag people into his kingdom against their wills. There's been a character about that whole idea that God brings, drags people, uh, kicking and screaming to Christ. Uh, that's what they say about drawing. That's what they say about of us who believe that we have a role in it in terms of our salvation. We just simply respond when God changes our heart and we believe. What God does, he, he doesn't drag us against our will. He makes us willing. Whereas before we were unwilling because we were hostile to God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We didn't want Christ. Christ wasn't lovely to us. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't fairer than 10,000. We didn't see him for who he is. But when God made us willing, all of that changed. And we saw him in his glory. Another lesson is joy. Joy. The kingdom is the source of of joy. People want to be happy. They're always looking for happiness. Looking for joy. 
They have to keep looking for it. When they find what they think it is, then they'll lose them later. It's temporary. But you know what real joy is? John 15, verse 11. Jesus says this in the upper room discourse to, on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Um, may, I, may I take uh, make a point here? It, it strikes me as fascinating that, as I said, Jesus is on the eve of his crucifixion. He's always going to die the next day. Those aren't pleasant circumstances. <laughs> but Jesus said, my joy. Jesus had joy on his way to die the next day. Knowing he's going to bear the sin of all who would ever believe, he's going to bear the wrath of God, yet he had joy. If that had been us, we'd have been, mm, tomorrow's going to be a bad day. <laughs> you see, this joy transcends, transcends the temporary fleeting joy or happiness that the world provides. And Jesus says to his men, the things I've just said to you in the previous verses, uh, 1 through 10, if you, these things are the things that will give you joy and be made full. The joy of Christ, the joy of God. Another aspect of joy, John chapter 16, verse uh, 24, Jesus continues, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, asking you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Joy of asking in prayer and God granting it. Divine things. Let me tell you something. Real joy the joy that God gives is not a joy based on favorable circumstances. It's joy that comes from knowing that between you and God, everything is right. You're right with Him. Right with Him. In the kingdom, there is joy. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is placed on the same plane in this text as righteousness and peace. Source of true joy is from the Lord. You want to have real joy? Lasting joy, eternal joy, can't come from any source outside of the Lord. Joy we have as believers. And this man had found this great treasure, the kingdom. And he had joy over it. He sells everything. Let me explain this. Jesus was not saying that the person can purchase, or that a person can purchase the kingdom of salvation, our salvation, because that would fly in the face of God. That would contradict the grace of God. The means by which salvation, our eternal life, is possessed is 
by faith, and God gives it to us. We cannot purchase it. Isn't that right? You can't buy your way into the kingdom. It's given to us. Luke chapter 12 is a place where uh, that is stated. Jesus says this in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Gives it to us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when you see that gift, you, you, you know you can't buy it, but you're willing to give up anything to obtain it. Turn from your sin. You'll turn from evil. You'll turn from everything that is contrary to the Lord because you want the most valuable thing there is, the kingdom of heaven. Hidden treasure. Next thing, a costly pearl. That's in verses 45 and 46. The word again there in verse 45 uh, ties this parable closer to the preceding one. The connection is the supreme value of the kingdom of heaven. These two parables talk about the infinite or supreme value of the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus uses a, a different character. He talks about a merchant seeking fine pearls. The merchant was a wholesale dealer in pearls in contrast to a retailer. As such, he traveled to markets, fishing ports, trade fairs, looking for fine and high-grade pearls. In fact, pearls in that day were considered to have top rank among valuables, worth three times gold. If you had fine pearls, you owned a fortune. And I was thinking about pearls and preparing this sermon this past week, and uh, I thought about a, a uh, group of pearls that my wife's told me about. <laughs> Mikimoto. <laughs> Japanese pearls. And the vernacular, they'd be expensive. <laughs> Very good pearls. Pearls in that day were found in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. In fact, it was dangerous to retrieve them. Free divers, that is, working without scuba masks, wetsuits, proper weights, or breathing apparatus, would dive to dangerous depths to retrieve those pearls. A single pearl of perfection, size, and beauty could be of immense value. A single one. What's interesting and Greco-Roman culture, pearls were valued. People understood that, and you see that in the Scripture. You see the association of pearls with other precious stones, for example, in Revelation 17, verse 4, Revelation 18, verse 12, chapter 16, and then verse, chapter 21 and verse 21. They, they saw pearls as quite valuable. In fact, Jesus used perils uh, in Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus speaks, he says in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Pearls are, he's referring to divine truth. He's saying don't throw them before 
human beings who are like wild beasts who have no ish, ish, issue, interest rather, in the value of divine truth. Pearls. The women in the church at Ephesus. Paul had to uh, instruct them about their coming to worship regarding pearls. In 1 Timothy 2, 9, women would wear them in their hair. They would fix their hair. Ever how y'all do that? And they'd have these expensive pearls in their hair. Draw attention to themselves and distract from worship. And Paul said, don't do that. When you come to worship, you don't want attention on you. You want it on him. You don't want to be a distraction from him. But that's another ex example of the value of pearls. Now notice in this parable, verse 45, it's like a merchant seeking fine pearls or a pearl of great value. The word here in the Greek is used of costly ointment that Mary poured on Jesus in anticipation of his death in John chapter 12, verse 3, and of believers' faith under trial, which is more precious than gold, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And this man, too, he sold all that he had and bought it. Some suggest that's picturing total commitment, and certainly it is, and every believer ought to be totally committed to the kingdom because of its immense value and the blessing that is ours. You ought to be committed to the things of God, the kingdom, completely. Answer this for me. What should you give your life to completely that's more valuable than the kingdom? Everything else you have, you're going to leave behind. When you go home, just think, you're not going to have it forever. You're going to leave it behind one day. Whatever your energies and commitments are to in this life, do understand it's temporary. Only, I told you in the opening, so one thing is permanent. One thing is eternal. The rest of it's not. And I know that's hard to believe because we live in a world that doesn't help us see that. The world tells us, no, 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 you've got to have this. This make you happy. This is the way to go. And God says, nonsense. Commit yourself to the kingdom. It's eternal. The men in his parables, they understood that. That's what Jesus is saying. totally committed to him his kingdom I think Jesus knows a thing or two about the kingdom don't you <laughs> some more spiritual lessons the kingdom is gained by personal appropriation you have to make it your own you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself what these men did in the parables. I've already said, and I'll say it again, everything else will pass away, but the kingdom is forever. Isaiah 9, 7 says, and of his government there will be increase. 
talking about Jesus' government, his kingdom, his messianic kingdom. It will never end. It's an eternal one. more spiritual lessons the man in the first parable was not looking for the kingdom lots of people are like that they're going along in their life and next thing they know they become a Christian weren't intending to be one Saul was like that Saul of Tarsus the apostle Paul he was on his way to persecute Christians next thing he knew Christ interrupted him knocked him down to the ground blinded him and said you're going to serve me saved him the Samaritan woman remember in John chapter 4 Jesus went there with disciples sent them to town to get some food and he sat in the well a woman comes to draw out water that woman didn't know she was standing in the presence of the living God incarnate Messiah and that was going to be the day that he was going to save her that woman went to the well for water and walked away with living water she didn't know she was getting saved that day she wasn't looking for Messiah she wasn't looking to be saved but God saved her Matthew, the writer of this gospel, he was filthy rich. He didn't know he'd be giving up his lucrative career and become a disciple and then an apostle. He didn't know that until one day Jesus walked by him and said, follow me. It wasn't Matthew's career choice. He wasn't in school. And they asked him, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. But then, on the other hand, there are those who are looking for something of genuine value. It's represented by the merchant here in uh, verses 45 and 46. For example, the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8, sitting in his chariot. Holy Spirit said, Philip, go to him. He's reading, and Philip explained Isaiah 53 to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, devout. He, was a, he had denounced his pagan religion. He wasn't a full proselyte to Judaism. And what God did, sent Peter, his men to Peter, and Peter went and preached the gospel, and Cornelius came to faith in Christ. He was looking for something genuine. These people were all drawn to Christ. And they understood. The Apostle Paul, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm going to read a text. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul is reflecting upon his life prior to Christ and then his life after salvation. Philippians chapter 3. We hear the wonderful words of the Apostle. Verse 7, let's begin there. But whatever things were gained to me. Talking about the things he just talked about in this pursuit of religion, Judaism. Those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the, get this, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you say that? Surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing that transcends the value of knowing Jesus Christ. 
nothing. And he goes on to say, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish, scubalon, excrement. That's what he counted as rubbish. He counted as rubbish all the things that he pursued in his religious pursuits. He had Christ. What is better than him? What is better than having Christ? When you, uh, the song says, when we, death do us on our brow, we'll love him then. Because we know the moment we leave from this place, we're going to be instantly in his presence. Is there anything better than knowing Christ? No. Being in his kingdom? No. I want to read a quote from Pastor John MacArthur. God sovereignly ordains the discovery of Christ. He deals with all people as individuals, ordering the steps of each one in accord with his plan, graciously granting to sinful hearts the will and the wisdom to see and appreciate the infinite value of the kingdom, and thereby motivating them to esteem Christ greater than all the riches of the world. That is saving faith. End of quote. On my way to church this morning, Sunday school in fact, <laughs> I thought about this song, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. If I could sing it, I would. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody said that's okay. <laughs> I'd rather have Jesus than houses and land. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this old world can afford. And I believe that's what you believe as well if you're a child of God. The most valuable possession in the world <laughs> is possessing the kingdom, which means that you possess Christ, which means that you are redeemed. You are saved. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this reality. What's really valuable. The world can't give it to us. It comes from you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for giving it to us who believe. I pray for any in this room this morning who is outside the kingdom. Bring them to yourself. I pray for we who are believers that we will draw closer to you as we take your truths to heart more deeply. See more fully by your grace the value of your kingdom, the value of salvation which you've bestowed upon us. These things I pray in the name of Christ.
Amen.